Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're about to take up our tithes and offerings, so that connection card you filled out earlier and your uh, tithes and offerings, if you wouldn't mind getting that ready, just a moment. Uh, this is my son, Isaac. He turned 16 today, my firstborn offspring right here, 16. Like 15 minutes ago, he was just, I could hold him like this. If he keeps growing, he's going to be able to hold me just like this, so let's see how we go with that. Uh, anyhow, uh, let me, uh, just to embarrass you just for a moment, some of you, uh, how many of you, when you go to the grocery store, you pay by check? Like you write a check at the, see this is so interesting between the 9 o'clock service and the 1030 service. Yeah, uh, how many of you have like a bunch of cash in your wallets right now? A bunch of cash. And we're like, no one wants to admit to that. Just a few crazy, crazy people. Uh, here, here's what we discover in terms of, uh, sometimes culture shifts, changes are kind of even in economies. And for me, like, I can't tell you last time I wrote a check. Like, I rarely write a check nowadays because I do everything online, kind of digitally now. And, like, if you came up and said, hey, can I borrow 20 bucks? Really, the honest truth is I don't have 20 bucks because I don't carry cash because everywhere I go now takes that little plastic thing that makes me feel like I've got a lot of money available and I don't realize how little I actually have available. And sometimes, you know, and so think about this this morning as sort of an encouragement by way of what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2. It's a pragmatic thing. So I don't have to, so we don't have to take up a special offering when I get there. Just when you come together on the first day of the week, you ought to give uh, a part of your income. So think of it like that. Uh, in the middle of the summer here, I know people have traveling schedules and vacations, all those sorts of things. So as a pragmatic exercise, let me encourage you to consider online giving, to automate the things that are important in your life is always ideal, and you could do that here at the Livingstones Church. If you go to our website, uh, fill out the, the information, it'll take you exactly where you need to go. It is safe, it is secure, you're totally in control, you can give how much, when you want, those sorts of things. But if you've not thought about that or done that yet, I want to just offer it to you this morning by way of encouragement, you ought to do that. And then, next Sunday, if you're gone on vacation, no big deal, you get to still be generous uh, with the things that God has blessed you with. You still get to invest into the kingdom of God. You still get to see uh, our mission and vision here at the Livingstones Church at work on the south side of South Bend. But right, we're going to pass out those buckets. Let me pray for it, and we'll give our offering now. Father, we give you thanks for the way that you've blessed us. And Lord, we recognize, especially from a global perspective, we are some of the richest people on the face of the earth. And so out of that, Lord, we want to be able to be a blessing to other people. And so we ask that you'd receive our tithes and our offerings and use it to be that blessing. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you're in the fourth or fifth grade, you are dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, you can go on to your class. For the rest of you, if you wouldn't mind getting out your Bible and turning to John chapter 15, this will be the last week that we're going to be in John chapter 15, and this is the fourth week. So we've been here for a while talking about what it looks like to live life on the vine that is Jesus. We're talking about how do we have lives that are deeply engrafted into the person of Jesus and all the things in that come from that. And with that, so we began the very first week by just talking about Jesus' admonition to bear fruit, that God is interested in our lives being productive for the kingdom of God, and he wants us to bear fruit. And when you ask, well, what kind of fruit are we talking about? It's sort of like what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, these sorts of things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, those sorts of things. And so this is what God wants from our lives. He wants there to be so much love and joy and peace that we're just bearing it all over the place. And Jesus says, the key to doing that is to having a life that is fully engrafted into me. You concentrate on just being in me and don't worry about the fruit. 
And sometimes as Christians, we focus on the fruit. And Jesus says, no, you focus on living your life in me, and the fruit will come. It will be a natural byproduct of your life in me. The second week that we start talking about the pruning shears of God and the reality based on verse 2 of chapter 15 is that everybody will encounter the pruning shears of God. And for us, because we're followers of Jesus, we want to be even more, even if we're bearing fruit, we want to bear more fruit. And so we talk about some areas of our life that might need pruning so we can get to that place of being more fruitful. Things like, what are the functional saviors in our life? Or what are the places in our life that are taboo or secretive? What, what are the places that truly yield nothing? Like, they consume a lot of time and energy and resources and thought, but they don't produce any fruit according to what Jesus would have us. Or number four, uh, what are the things that are choking out the nutrients that Jesus wants for us in terms of life on the vine with him? Now, last week, we talked about the secret to getting anything we want from God. Like, like how do we get whatever we want from God? Because Jesus tells us twice in this section that you can ask for whatever you want or wish for whatever you want, and it'll be given to you, which is amazing promises. But Jesus says, yeah, but the qualifier is, is but you're bearing fruit, and you are fully engrafted in me. You are remaining in me. And from that posture, what that means is that Jesus' heart and how he feels about things is what our heart is like and how we feel about things. And what, how Jesus sees people in situations is how we'll begin to see people in situations. That how Jesus thinks, the Bible tells us we have the mind of Christ, that's how we'll think. And so what we will wish for and what we will want will be very consistent with the person of Jesus. And it is always the pleasure of the Father to answer the, the prayers of His Son. And if we pray in His name, in His essence, in His character, it is always the pleasure of God to answer those prayers. Now this morning we want to go on and cover, uh, really emphasize the last half of the section, but I want to read the whole thing if we could. One uh, Again, I know we've been doing it now for three weeks, the fourth week here, but John chapter 15, beginning verse 1, says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. I want to concentrate this morning on the last half of this section here where Jesus will pick up three main themes of obedience and love and friendship, and all these will be very critical in regards to what it means to live a life in the vine. That is Jesus. 
But let your eyes skip back up to verse 8 for a second, because verse 8 sets up then verses 9 to 17. But at the very end of verse 8, Jesus says this to his disciples, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now think about that for just a moment. Showing yourselves to be my disciples. That there's going to be something about our life, something about our character, something about the way we live that it will prove and demonstrate that we're actually followers and disciples of Jesus. That we're living our lives in the vine in such a way that it shows ourselves to be Jesus' disciples. Or to put it another way, uh, one of our uh, living stoners here had on their Facebook status, this is several weeks ago, asked the question, how can we tell a Christian from a non-Christian? That was the question. How can you tell a Christian from a non-Christian? And in my mind, I thought, well, the answer is obvious. It's obviously the secret handshake that Christians know, and that is how you could tell the difference. You don't know the handshake? Good luck with that when you meet Jesus. I hope it's going to be... No, I'm just kidding. No, no. Just kidding. It's a serious question, though, and it's an important question, and honestly, the church has been trying to define it and talk about it for 2,000 years. There's always sort of been this tension and this struggle of the church always trying to define who is in and who is out. Who's actually a real follower of Jesus and who is not a real follower of Jesus? Now, that begs the question from us, what gives us the right to even ask such questions or try to answer such questions? But you get, you get what's happening in the background. It's that, you know, how do we tell who a Christian from, from a non-Christian? And so you've got two cars. They're parked at a stoplight. A man's in the first car and a woman's in the second car. And the light goes from red to green. And the man in the first car doesn't notice it at all. So the woman behind him is getting, you know, a little bit, you know, frustrated and a little bit anxious, and she's pounding on the steering wheel, and she's yelling and yelling and yelling, and finally she blasts her horn just as the light goes from green to yellow. The guy looks up, sees it's yellow, quickly dashes out, and the woman doesn't get across because it goes back to red again. So now she's furious, she's flipping him off, she's cussing, she's honking, she's throwing a huge fit when all of a sudden there's a little knock at her window, and it's a police officer with a gun drawn right towards her and says, ma'am, Get out of the car right now. Keep your hands where I can see them. So she gets out of the car. She's all flustered and frustrated and scared. And, and he has her put her, her hands on the car. And, and then she, he, he handcuffs her and takes her down to the station and throws her in the cell. A couple hours later, she gets out. And, and the police officer's talking to her. And he says, I, I want to apologize for the, the mistake that we've made. I'm sorry uh, for arresting you. But clearly, based on the Jesus bumper sticker you had on the back, of your car, the little fish, and, and the follow me to Sunday school, and the what would Jesus do, naturally I assumed you stopped. <laughs> I've got a day job, don't worry about me. <laughs> so how do you tell who's in and who's out? Is it like outer appearance? Because that's typically where we go. That's typically where we first start out. And it's just interesting to me, even in my own life, to think about those things that, especially growing up, I thought, oh, you can't be a Christian and do that. Or you can't be a Christian and have that. And so, and every church seems to have their list, don't they? I mean, you just, you go to different churches, they all have their list. So you can go to some churches and, and if you got a tattoo, you can't really, you must not really love Jesus. Now, not here, that doesn't work at all because they're all over the place, but I mean, or, you know, a woman wears pants. I don't know if you grew up in a tradition where it was always a skirt, it was always a dress, and they always had to be down to your ankles. Or, or you know, you know it's, it's funny to me, all these outer appearances, especially dress, doesn't always revolve around women. Like, do you ever hear a discussion on what guys can or cannot wear? Right? Like, when do we get to say, you cannot follow Jesus and wear a man thong? You cannot. Right? <laughs> Which I do believe. I think that is the truth. 
Yet at the same time, we do recognize that there's something about the spirit of our external appearance that does matter, right? I'm not saying, I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all what we look like on the outside. I, I do think that there's something about when we are deeply in the vine that is Jesus, that inner reality does manifest itself somehow on our outward appearance. And we have that sensitivity every once in a while where we think, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if that really is consistent with somebody who's truly devoted to Jesus and loves Jesus. And sometimes we see it when because it, 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 it betrays something else going on. So when that girl once again puts another provocative picture of herself on Facebook, and then all of her friends, uh, guys on her friends list starts liking it, we know that there's probably something driving her that's some void that she feels. There's something that's going on that she feels insecure and is not receiving from Jesus. And so, yeah, we think even in that, there's something that outwardly ought to. And so I start to think through, what are all those hard and fast lines that I used to have, especially growing up, like alcohol is one. Like, if you're going to be a Christian, I mean, you can't, you can't drink. So if I saw anyone with a beer in their hand, that would be it. In my mind, you can't really be a Christian. Or, you know, if they were drinking a glass of wine for supper, and then you get to that embarrassing story where Jesus is turning all that water into wine. But, you know, you get what I'm saying. But I do have, I do have some concern because Jesus doesn't really just, it doesn't, he doesn't define this for us very well. Jesus never gives us, here are the outer appearances I'm looking. I mean, he doesn't say, if there's more than two inches of cleavage, and then that's, I mean, he doesn't do that stuff. And so, in some way, we're trying to figure out how do we live this life but right now, I'm telling you, I think we're living in times that are very polarizing, and it's on the news, it's on our Facebook news feeds, where we're all trying to define who's in and who's out. And I, sometimes I get a little nervous when it feels to me like as Christians, we believe other people are truly Christian if they think like me, believe what I believe, and vote the same way that I do. And sometimes that comes out in weird ways, and we've got to be careful with that, because I'm telling you, listen to me, this is very important. You might be tempted to think that you cannot be a Christian and believe in evolution at the same time. But I'm telling you, there are people who deeply love Jesus and they believe in evolution. Or it might be a temptation for you to believe that, well, you can't possibly be a Christian and at the same time be for marriage equality. I mean, you, that's just impossible. But I want you to know that you're going to meet people who are deeply in love with Jesus and are for marriage equality. Or they like Chick-fil-A, too. I mean, that, you're going to find those people who are in that, in that camp. Or you're going to be tempted to believe that a Christian can't possibly vote for a Democrat. I mean, come on. I mean, have you seen the Democratic platform? Or you could say Republican if that's where you're at. I mean, but I'm telling you, listen to me, you're going to encounter people who are deeply in the vine that is Jesus, who are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they might, in, the, in that voting booth, uh, vote for a Democrat. You're going to be tempted to think all sorts of things. But, but, but let me just say this as your pastor who loves you, don't make these things our dividing lines. Be, because if we do, the thing that we'll lose in this will be our mission here on the south side of South Bend. And I have great concerns about this. I'm not saying you can't have your own beliefs or your own opinions. I, I, I'm not saying those sorts of things. I'm just telling you, if you allow those things, though, to be our dividing lines of who's in and who's out, you will have nothing in Jesus' teachings to support you in it. Absolutely nothing. And so we start going through the list. Well, uh, can you be a Christian? And what, Well, if you say a cuss word, then I bet you're out. And I mean, this is how I grew up where, man, if anyone said damn, it would be like, oh, they, can't, they can't really be a follower of Jesus. And I also grew up where if you didn't worship like I did, then you couldn't possibly be a follower of Jesus. And in the end, what happens is you read the Bible, like the entirety of the Bible, and you get this big scope 
view from God, like his heart, his character, what do you think? and you read through like the, the prophets and their message and heart of God and the entire ministry of Jesus, and what you come to find out is, I'm not sure God is so tripped up by a dam as he is real uh, issues of poverty and famine and children who are dying in the world and institutional, I mean, you, you hear what I'm saying? And that should be for us a red flag. Like, what offends us more? Like, when we hear somebody use the word damn or children dying of preventable diseases or starvation in the world, what, what, obsesses, uh, what upsets us the most? And, and growing up, it just seems, at least by emphasis, maybe when you read the whole scope of the Bible, maybe God is far more concerned about war and famine and institutional corruption and ravaging innocent people across the face of the earth than he is about what you do with your genitalia. That, that maybe when you, when you get that big picture, you come to the realization that maybe God isn't nearly as obsessed with your genitals as you are. Can I use that word? i got to say it one more time. And having said that, though, listen to me, having said that, we do know, though, that our confession that Jesus is Lord does result in some sort of real and visible difference. It, it has to. That our confession that Jesus is Lord has to result in how we talk. Jesus himself said, by, out of the overflow of the heart, our mouth speaks. And so if I'm just using language full of contempt all the time, that will betray that maybe I'm not plugged into the vine, maybe my heart is full of contempt, and that's why I'm using these sorts of words. And our confession that Jesus is Lord does have to matter in regards to our genitals, which, by the way, that's the last time I'll use that word, that, that we know that our bodies now don't belong just to us. They now belong to Jesus, and we must use them in a way that reflects his lordship. And so we've got this sort of awkwardness of wanting to fall into some sort of weird legalism. I don't, I don't want to go there, but at the same time knowing this stuff has to matter. That living our life in Jesus as the vine has to somehow manifest itself in a way where it might cause people, like Jesus says in verse 8, to say, oh, you belong to Jesus. That's what he says at the end of verse 8, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That we want to talk in a way, act in a way, behave in a way, in, in attitude, in, and in some way that if people around us sees it, whether you're family members or people you work with, that there's something they'll go, you look like Jesus. Like, you must be a follower of Jesus. I could just, and so how do we get to that place where we show ourselves to be his disciples? And here's the thing, it's not rocket science, Jesus tells us. He's very clear. This will be the distinguishing marker. And this is what he's talking about here in John 15, this last section. This will be the distinguishing marker, and for Jesus, it's love. Love will be the thing that you will be so loving that people will see it, and they'll think to themselves, you must be followers of Jesus. He'll say earlier in the Gospel of John, John 13, verse 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. It's that you love one another. And I I just think there's some irony to me that when we as Christians, in an an attempt to defend Jesus, sometimes in an attempt to defend whether it's a political stance or what we believe, I mean, we could be so mean in it and so angry in it, and and we're calling for a boycott that, I mean, it just betrays love all over the place. And I just, I I don't care what side of the issue you're on. Let, Let me just say this for Sam here. I'm not going to stop eating at Chick-fil-A because they put crack in their nuggets and I'm addicted to them. <laughs> right? I mean, and you dip in the Polynesian sauce. Oh, it's good. No, I'm just teasing. I mean, you get what I'm saying? Like, I, it, Christians do it all the time. They go, what's boycott? Really, I've never seen a boycott ever it produce anyone that you guys look like Jesus. Just look. I mean, that just never happens. So maybe we should just start by forgetting all the boycotting everybody who doesn't think like this. 
Somebody give me an amen. Maybe we should stop by just not boycotting everybody who doesn't think like us. Amen? Come on, people. This is, I need help here. And yet we want to remain in the vine of Jesus to such a degree that we show ourselves to be his disciples. And let me explain what it means to be a disciple first. Because sometimes, like in the first century, it was different than it is today. Like today we think of like a classroom. you got 25 desks and kids. And it's largely information exchange. We have some adult who stands in front of these kids all day to give them information that they need to regurgitate on the I-STEP test scores so that we can still get funding from the state. You, you, you get what's happening. That wasn't the way it was in the first century at all. They didn't even have I-STEP tests. Did you know that? It's possible. Uh, anyhow, um, to be a disciple, it looked like this. If your family had the means, and most did not, most did not, and it was just boys, right? The, just Unfortunately, the girls did but if a family with means, with money, had sons that they wanted to be educated, they would send them off with a renowned teacher or master, or if you were a, a, grew up in a Jewish home, a rabbi, and your son then would study under that teacher or that philosopher or that rabbi as a disciple. And it wasn't just an information exchange that what they would be doing is they'd be studying under these teachers. And so it, it looked like this. Uh, if you were a Jewish circle, it might be uh, you would send your son to Rabbi Gamaliel or Rabbi Hillel or some other famous rabbi. If you lived in a Roman or Greek home, you might them, send them to study under somebody like Socrates or some, somebody from the school of Socrates or Aristotle or Epicurus or Cicero or Marcus Aurelius. But you weren't just trying to acquire information or facts. The main goal was you learned their entire way of life. Your goal was to become just like your teacher, just like your master, or just like the rabbi. You wanted to learn how they lived, how they ate, how they spoke, how they treated people. You adopted their worldview, their assumptions, their rule of life, their philosophy of life. That's what it was all about, to be a disciple. It's not just about, hey, teach me what I need to know. It's how do you live life, and as your disciple, I want to live life like you do. And see, what makes Jesus so unique is he was a carpenter. Carpenters were not masters and teachers and rabbis. Yet Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm going to, I am in this role where I'm going to be a teacher, I'm going to be a master, and I'm going to have disciples. And the other thing that Jesus does that was unique is Jesus actually picks his disciples, like other, other teachers and masters, don't do, but Jesus comes along and he picks people who no one would ever pick as a disciple. I'm telling you, Aristotle would not say, well, let's go find some fishermen from Galilee to find. I mean, no, no, no. Jesus comes along, he picks people who are the most unlikely of disciples. And when they gather around Jesus, it's not just an information exchange where, here, let me give you some facts about the kingdom of God. What they're trying to do then is by following Jesus as a disciple, learn his entire way of life how he ate, how he thinks, how he treats people, how he responds in all sorts of situations to learn his heart and his worldview and his beliefs and his assumptions so that in the end, you will look like him and you'll be able to do the things that he does. And that's why in it, Jesus sends out his disciples to carry on his ministry. Now, 2,000 years later, it should be no different. Jesus still assumes from us that if we're going to be his disciples, it's not just some information exchange. It's not just about the facts. It's we've actually learned his life. We know his heart. That by being grafted to the vine that is Jesus, we know how he thinks. We know how he responds to people. We know what he would say to people. We know his entire demeanor and his attitude, and we can act accordingly. We, we act, and when we do that, everyone around us will go, oh, you, you follow Jesus. You must be a student and a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus fully expected that his followers would look different from those who were following Epicurus. They're two totally different philosophies. He expected that his followers would look different than those who were following hedonism. 
that he knows that his followers will look different than other Jewish rabbis who might be seeking an overthrow, a violent overthrow of Rome or, or salvation by some sort of legalistic code. That Jesus' followers would be identifiable and they would be distinguishable. And we know this to be true because we see so much persecution happening where, yeah, no, Jesus' disciples stood out. They were not like everybody else. They were different. And so in this, what we want to do is figure out how do we obey our master. This is what he says here in John 15. If you obey me, if you'll love me, you'll obey me. That's, that's the way love works. That's the way being a disciple works. And I think sometimes the church does a disservice by, by not talking about discipleship very much. Because the church, we've tended historically, at least recently, to be all about the point of decision. Like we're so anxious for people to say yes to Jesus and decide on Jesus that we, that's what we emphasize, not so much the disciple making. And it looks like this. Even preachers, we can get up and kind of somewhat manipulatively drive sermons by either heightened emotionalism, sometimes aided by special lighting and soft music. And, boy, we could show a video that's going to move everybody and give you warm fuzzies and, then, and then, then call you to make a decision for Jesus right now. Or we go to the other extreme and use fear. Like, well, you better say yes to Jesus now because you could get in the car on your way home and, and get in a car accident, and then where are you going to be for all eternity? That's right. And so, I mean, and so it's all about moving people towards the point of decision. Say the prayer. Or get baptized, and then we all clap and celebrate and brag about the number of people who just made that decision, who either just prayed the prayer or who just got baptized, and then we go off on our merry way, and we totally leave out the more difficult and time-consuming work that is discipleship. And I think we do a great disservice to those who make that decision without, without them realizing this is not all about the decision of itself. It's about becoming a disciple and follower of Jesus. And that's why you can have people, oh, no, I'm all good. What do you mean? Oh, when I was five, I invited Jesus into my heart, and I prayed that prayer. So, you know, I, I'm good. And, and their life doesn't look anything like Jesus. I mean, there's nothing in their life that would, that would indicate their followers of Jesus, but they said the prayer when they were five years old. Or it happens all the time. Oh, oh I'm good. Yeah, well, what's yeah, yeah, no, I went to church camp when I was 12, and I got baptized, so I'm good. But yet their life doesn't look anything like Jesus. And, and yet we think, well, well, at least they made the decision. Or, you know, they were in college, and I read the Bible, and I got this warm, fuzzy feeling all over me, and a little goosebumps, and so I gave my life to Jesus. But now their life doesn't look anything like Jesus. I think Jesus, in the end, expects from us an obedience to him in such a way that it reveals you are followers of me. Remind, remaining in the vine of Jesus, then, is to obey the teachings of Jesus. And the reason why is because he's our master, and he's our teacher. That's what we meant when we confessed him as Lord. He wasn't some cosmic get-out-of-hell-free card. We confessed him as our Lord. And think about that word, Master, Lord. What that says is, I'm fully yielding my life to you. I'm surrendering what I want to you. I, 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 I'm bringing to you the sum total of who I am, my experiences, my thinking, my heart, and I'm giving it to you and saying, you transform it according to your own heart, into your own purposes, into your own will. And so in it, you have my total allegiance, my total devotion, and my total submission. To which Jesus comes back and says, great, now you need to learn this one thing first, and predominantly, it is love. And no, 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 the whole, your whole, the sum total of your life has to be about love. And so if you ask, what is Jesus' main concern, his top priority? It's not a trick question. He's very clear about it all throughout the Gospels. It is love. In fact, this very section, verse 17, how does it end? This is my command, love each other. Now, the problem is we throw this word around all the time, don't we? Love, love, love. I mean, even saying it, you don't know, what does that even mean? Like, 
I love my children. I love Let's Spoon yogurt, especially the cake batter kind. I love the Olympics. I love Sunday afternoon naps. I love Breaking Bad. I mean, you see how we use that all the time no matter what. Yet Jesus steps in, in this section here and he says, I'm setting myself up as the template for defining love. And when you look at it, what you realize is Jesus doesn't have a lot of sympathy for the emotion or the feeling aspects of love. Now, I'm not saying we weren't knit together and created like that. So, I mean, if you have feelings, and I'm not saying boo, emotions or feelings. I'm just saying for Jesus, ultimately, the way that he defines love and the template he gives us for love has very little to do with how we feel. For Jesus, he moves it out of the realm of feeling into the realm of action. We act in love. We choose love, sometimes even in spite of how we feel. If love was just always about a feeling, then there might be people in your life that you will never love because there will be people in your life that you will never feel like loving, right? You don't want to have that in your life? People that I have never felt like love. I mean, that's why Jesus comes along and says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to even love our enemies. Now, how many of you have ever felt like loving your enemy? Never. I've never once ever thought to myself, you know, I feel like loving my enemies. That's why they're my enemies. Because I never feel like loving them. But Jesus is, yes, but our life will be so radically different than the rest of the world that we're even going to choose to act in love towards our enemies, which might mean things like don't bomb them and kill them. But you, you see what I'm saying, right? That we're going to love our enemies in a way that, that manifests into Jesus' lordship. So we act in love. We choose love. It's a crisis of the will at times. But what Jesus is saying to us too is we will respond and treat and react to everyone with love, whether we feel like it or not. And Jesus points back to himself at verse 12. He says, my command is this, love each other. And then he puts a qualifier, as I have loved you. And when you watch Jesus with his disciples, I mean, I don't picture him saying here, didn't you guys see how, you know, all the emotional warm fuzzies I had for you guys this whole past three years? I mean, I just don't say that. He goes on and talks about in verse 13. The very next verse, verse 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It's action. It's always about action. That I'm willing to give up my very self for you. I'm willing to sacrifice my life itself for you. And even though they don't realize the full implications of this right now, Jesus is picking up action. Our actions must reveal obedience that produces love. And this love has to be so radical, so sacrificial, so grace-filled, so powerful, that when people see it, they think to themselves, you must belong to Jesus. And wouldn't that be the dream of the church? That the Living Stones Church, when anyone saw us, they would go, you guys must belong to Jesus. Really, how so? Because of how loving you are. It's unbelievable. Uh, We've never seen anything like it. Unfortunately, the church doesn't get that very often. People who are not followers of Jesus rarely look at Christians and say, you guys must be followers of Jesus. I mean, they say we might be full of something else like hypocrisy or meanness or anger or a lust for power and control, but very, very rarely do they say, we, we know that you follow Jesus because of your love. And so that's where we need to get to. And, and, I, and I confess, there's, there's some things in there that are just difficult to, to describe. It's just difficult to figure out. And, and in the end, what I do know is he's called us to live our life in him to such a degree that we're bearing fruit, and that fruit in the end, it's love. And I, I love making guacamole. I don't know if anyone else likes guacamole. Love guacamole, especially with enough garlic that you could peel paint with your breath afterwards. And but have you ever tried buying avocados? I'm not really good at it. Like, I know, like, you, how do you, how, when's an avocado ready? When, when is it ripe? You know, it's got to be soft, but not too soft. And you ever cut one open, and it's like all brown and nasty and gross. You get, oh, man. 
or you cut one open, it's like rock hard, like I can't mush this into guacamole. I mean, and so how, how do you know when the fruit is ripe? For, for Jesus, you know the fruit in your life is ripe when it tastes like love. Like, you know that the fruit of your life is ripe when it tastes like love. That's a Facebook status right there. Somebody should put that on right now. That the, the fruit of your life is ripe with Jesus when it tastes like love. And, and he ends this section by really trying to give us confidence. He, he wants us to be confident in him as disciples. And what he does here is he even elevates her status beyond disciples. This is where he says, listen, I'm not even going to call you servants. Right? You're my friends. See, that's a whole other level of, of motivation and incentive to follow after Jesus. Jesus, look, I know I am your master, I am your teacher, I am your Lord, and you are my, my disciples, you are my, my, my students, but let's go beyond that. I'm, I'm going to call you friends because you are in my circle of trust. Anyone see the movie Meet the Parents? Remember the conversation, right? See, circle of trust, you. That's where you used to be. But because of Jesus' radical love for you, now he's exchanged it. And you are now inside Jesus' circle of trust. You are his friends. And friendship is at a whole other level. Because we know we can do things for other people, sometimes out of obligation or out of duty or, you know, the nature of the relationship dictates it. This way, you know, when you go to work, if you've got a boss, right, and the boss comes in and says, I need you to do this, this, and this. I mean, you might not want to do any of that. You might even hate that, but you end up having to do it. Why? Because it's the boss, and I'm getting the paycheck. There's the leverage. Or sometimes you see this in your home. If you've got little kids, when they have to do chores, like maybe in your home your kids love chores and they can't wait. But I know in my home it doesn't work like that at all. I need you to mow the yard. Dad, come on. I mean, that's right. But what do they have to do? They have to go mow the yard. Why? Because the relationship requires it. I'm the dad. I'm the parent. You're the child. But when a friend needs something, what's too great from our, for our friend? Like when we connect together in, in genuine friendship, like we truly love one another in friendship, and you need help, and you need something, what's too great for me? I mean, what, uh, we're friends, anything that you need. Or sometimes this works out with an adult child and a parent. Like it might have started when you were a little kid, you know, I don't want to do the chore, I don't want to mow the grass. But when your parent is old now and, and sickly and, and weak and can't mow their own yard, that adult child will mow the parent's yard, and when the parent tries to pay him for it, like, what are you doing? I'm like, I mean, I love you. You're, you're my parent. I mean, everything shifts in terms of motivation. Or uh, sometimes you hear stories after war, people come back, and, and you hear amazing uh, sacrifices that soldiers made, sometimes giving up their own life by, you know, laying down on a bomb so that it protects everyone else around them. And so let's just say that, uh, so that somebody saved your life in that wartime setting, and when you come back, if that soldier's widow or children needed anything, would it be too much for you? Are you kidding me? I mean, that, that guy saved my life. Like, I'm here today because that guy was willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice and allowed me to live. And so if his, if his widow needs something, I mean, I'm going to make sure she has what she needs and, and his kids are taken care of. And, and that's what Jesus is trying to do here at the end of John 15, the section he's trying to say, I want to take us to a whole other level. You're, you're not just my disciple. You're not just my servants. You are my friends. And out of that, to serve as that motivation we need. And based on that now, based on the fact that we are friends with Jesus, he tells us this in the end. What is the last words here in the second? Look at the bottom of verse 17. Is this. Now go love each other. Go, it's all back to go love each other. So let, let's stand together. Let me close uh, this morning. By, I just want to read the last half of the section one more time. I'll, I'll start at the end of verse 8. It says, Showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other.